Hi friends, on this episode, we will start with a sermon from Matt Chandler regarding Sanctity of Life Sunday that's coming up here soon. I will critique a Bethel worship song called Jesus is Lord. I have some data on what people want differently in their churches, and then I want to tell you about a book I have read recently that's really important. That's all coming up on the Corey Drew Act Show. In a ton of modern American churches, there's a new Bethel worship song going around, quite popular, that we might need to stop singing. I'll do that, but we need to start here. Sanctity of Life Sunday is upon us on the Corey Act Show. Sunday, January 23rd, the year of our Lord, 2021, millions, ah, I shouldn't say that, hundreds of thousands of churches across the United States will recognize Sanctity of Life Sunday. And what I want to do is prepare you for it, maybe help prepare your church for it, because it's a, a topic the church needs to be giving discussion to with regularity, and I try to reserve time on the show around the second or third week of January every year to talk about it, and we will revisit that here in just a minute. My name is Corey Truax. Thank you for listening to The Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and on his radio talk, 91.9 and 89.7. But amongst many other things, I get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings in Greenville. You are invited, and you can find us at beachwood.cc, beachwood.cc. Had several new families this year, young families, and it's been a blast to see, and you are welcome to come out as well. We'd love to have you. For example, on the 23rd of January, I have prepared or am preparing a short, very short, word about Sanctity of Life Sunday. I'm not preaching that day. I'm preaching the week before on the, uh, what's that, the 16th of January. But we we want to give give time to it, both theologically and practically. Because here's something I fear and the thing I want to try to help prepare you for is we often think the right things about this. We believe in the Imago Dei, the image of God imprinted on humanity that makes humanity so different and so, so vital, so precious to God over any animal or any of his other creations, humanity in all phases of life being precious. We think the right things. I think some of you would say you vote the right ways regarding the issue of the the sanctity of life at all stages. That includes abortion and includes other things too, but we emphasize abortion on those Sundays. But there is, a, I think, a, a frustrating disconnect for all of us where we think the right things. We might say we vote the right ways, Maybe, I hope this is part of your prayer life, because prayer is a necessity, there's power in it, that you would pray for the justices of the Supreme Court of the United States to diminish abortions even more this summer when they decide their case from that Mississippi law, that we would continue to see the righteous law enacted, but outside of, of prayers and thinking the right things, believing the right things, there is some frustration around, what can I do? And so I want to give you some ideas to maybe even take this week, because I'm doing this, the show will come out the week before Sanctity of Life Sunday. Maybe you would explore some of these, present them to your leadership in your church. Some of you are leadership in churches. With the eye towards just making sure your people know about them. I would just give you these two. One, 
preborn.org. I have so I, I have so much respect for these people, and I donate to them as much as I can. Uh, every, every year I give them a gift. Preborn is the, is the primary way women in crisis pregnancy situations are one of the most common ways that they can get an ultrasound and get it for free. And if, in terms of effectiveness, the ultrasound is one of the most effective tools. Even at times previous to heartbeat, seeing what is obviously not an amorphous blump of cells, a nebulous something or other in the womb. I don't remember, I don't remember the number, but it is, it, it is mathematically significant that if a woman sees an abortion, she does not go through with that abortion most of the time. And it is $56 per, per, um, per, what's it called? Ultrasound. You can give to them at preborn.org, preborn.org. You could just go get $56 and you will have given an ultrasound. And guys, in a really very practical way, you could save a life. You could save an unborn, a preborn life through that ultrasound. You'll never know that baby, that baby's name. You'll never know that mom's or dad's name, but you will know that you, you at least gave. They do more than that, though. They are specifically a Christian organization. They are gospel sharers. They offer courses and counseling for dads, for young dads, or that are going to they're going to be involved for for those girls as well. So preborn.org, I would highly recommend them. And then look around for your local crisis pregnancy center, your Christian crisis pregnancy center. If you, like me, are in the upstate of South Carolina, we have an excellent and thriving one called the Carolina Pregnancy Center up in Spartanburg. Sure, it can be a donation. I'm sure they could use your donation. Sometimes that might be volunteering because here's some of the services they offer. I can't remember what they call it or if they have a good, um, like a clever little name for it. But there's like a fatherhood mentoring program. So a guy like me, not technically a dad, but sort of kind of got to play a role like that. Connect me with young Buck. I'm 35. Connect me with the guy in his early 20s who's about to be a dad, wasn't ready for it. So we can mentor and guide. I don't know if they do, if they do this, but I, I know of churches in the upstate that are well-stocked with, uh, with diapers and, and wipes and formula. So as to say in a very practical way, I'm ready. We are ready as a people to engage with this to pray about it, absolutely to pray for, for justice, for good laws, to pray for the end of this horrific practice. And then alongside those prayers and knowing and thinking the right things, some practical things. So find your local crisis pregnancy center. I hope your church hears about them this week and also preborn.org. Now to finish this out, here's what I want to do. Matt Chandler is the pastor of the Village Church in Texas. You hear from him a, a decent enough on my show, but they focus on this every year. They will do a Sunday there in a mega church and, and talk about abortion for about an hour. What I'm about to play for you is about two minutes. I probably will stop, start and stop as we go. Matt Chandler had just gone through the Genesis 1 passage of the, the Mago Day. He made the theological case that there's just no biblical justification for abortion. And so he's done the theology. Here's what I assume about my audience. You guys probably have the theology pretty well nailed down. 
If you want to talk theology of abortion, I'd be glad to. Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. Corey Truax Show at gmail.com if you want to hear the theological bit. But now he takes some time here to get to the practical arguments, and I just think he does it really well. So this is Matt Chandler of the Village Church in uh, or around Dallas, Texas, talking uh, maybe some things you need to talk coming up here soon on Sanctity of Life Sunday. Eight weeks. That's two months pregnant. Baby in the womb can suck his or her thumb, recoils from pricking. They can feel. They respond to sound. All their organs are present. The brain is functioning. The heart is pumping. The liver is making blood cells. The kidneys are cleaning fluid. There's a fingerprint. At 21 weeks, the baby can survive outside of the womb. So So he went a little fast there. Going back, that first thing he said was eight weeks. Within eight to ten weeks, all of the organs that I have are present in that human at ten weeks. I don't know what else to call that except a separate human being, separate totally from the mother. And even says here, at 21 weeks, a, can, a child can survive outside the womb. Yeah, that depends on medical attention. But yeah, starting to get the, starting to get the ability to, to survive even that early on. So let me make a, a statement that's controversial, but it's crazy to me that it's controversial. A baby is in the mother's womb or in the mother's body, but the baby is not the mother's body. It has its own DNA. It has its own organs. It has its own blood type. Like, how would you argue that that's the woman's body? And you can't make the argument that you should be able to do with your body anything you want to do. There's hundreds of laws on the books that would keep you from doing with your body what you want to. Take off your clothes, run down the street. You're going to jail. (laughs) There's There's a kind of hypocrisy here that's hard to get the mind around. This past week, there was a woman, God bless her. There's a woman on a flight. I don't know how many of you saw this. Who in the middle of the flight gave, went to the bathroom and gave birth and threw the baby in the trash can. Now, do you see that collective whore? All she had to do is land and let a doctor rip that thing piece from piece out of her womb and nobody would gasp. Oh, God. When you say it that way, that is, that is powerful. I've, this is why he's so much better at this than I am. I've often used the illustration, the, the hypocrisy, the craziness of our laws in that if a drunk driver hits a pregnant woman, he is liable for the t- lives of two people. But if that same woman were driving in that same car at that same time, driving to an abortion clinic to have that child torn limb to limb, torn limb from limb and literally removed piece by piece. That's legal. But hey, but don't die in a, in a drunk driving accident on the way there for that kid. I'm going to let Matt Chandler finish it up here. Legal and acceptable. But let her throw it in the trash can and it's evil. Tell me what changed. In fact, being thrown in a trash can on an airplane might be a more pleasant death for an infant than what abortion actually brings about, whether it's chemical or surgical. Another just really sobering reality. We don't, we don't know everything there is to know about life in the womb, but we do know that the methods of abortion used after a certain point are really violent. Violence against the innocent. Violence against those who can't stand for themselves. So I'm going to take us to a break early, but hey, Sanctity of Life Sunday is coming your way. I'd love for your churches 
Love for some, somebody to say something on Sanctity of Life Sunday and not just to scream at them liberals, not just to get up and be angry about it, but to get up and say, theologically, we believe life is precious because it's in the image of God. And we want to glorify God by working in our community, supporting the ministries and the causes that are already there. And if our prayers are answered and abortions are very soon quite diminished in their number in this country, that are, we're ready to put out the signs, put out the banners, put on our social media, ask churches, ladies, are you in trouble? You come here. We've got what you need. We're going to come alongside and support because men and women, whoever's listening, we love life. We love the image of God. And we want to, to honor every one of his image bearers. When we come back, there's a song going around getting quite popular. I don't think it's quite right. So let me walk you through this new Bethel worship song when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. I'm never particularly concerned about being super popular with everybody, but even I going into this segment think, am I about to be too picky? Am I about to be too much of a stickler and just needlessly make some of you unhappy with me. I hope that's not the case, and I would love to get your feedback once we've gotten through it. My name is Corey Truax. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can contact the show at Show at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I hope that you will, and we can interact there. You can send me things for the show, as some of you did this week, and I'm grateful. There's a, there's a, a group out there, a, a series of churches a network of churches all all related to one another that go by the name Vineyard. And the last week I sort of went after this church this church planning group Ark. And now I'm burning bridges with Vineyard people. I, w- I want you to know while I love you, I'm just just trying to make us careful. <laughs> I, I, I promise I don't have vendettas. But this Vineyard group, I, I would say that there's some theological issues and lack of theological rigor on some things. But recently, they put out a song. This was the summer of 2021, but because I don't really listen to music at all, I'm only just now hearing it, and also because of the typical situation in Christian contemporary music, or contemporary Christian music, it takes a bit to push out the old Mercy Me song, Casting Crown song, and move on to anything new. And so, I want to play for you a piece of it. We're not going to play all of it. I want you to get a flavor for it. And I will admit this. It's one of my most uncomfortable feelings. I didn't know what to do with it. I was in a setting where it got played and sung. So I was experiencing it for the first time with thousands of people singing it. And thinking, yes, I see. I see what you're saying. Something in my spirit is saying, it's not quite right. There's something wrong here. And so I'll play for it. I'll just play for you now. It's called You Have Our Yes by Vineyard Worship. And, you know, I want to stop doing the preamble. Here's the song. Here you go. You Have Our Yes, Vineyard Worship. Our rights and our freedoms, our flags and our kingdoms, all of our idols must bow. Our wars and our Our worldly possessions All of 
chorus there you have our yes let our lives confess jesus is lord that's what the next part of the song is uh, it's a chorus that just says jesus is lord so I, that's all i want to play for you the first verse was there our rights and our freedoms our flags and our kingdoms all our idols must bow our wars and weapons and worldly possessions all of our idols must bow verse two is set up the same way except it's our selfish ambition for power and position, our fear- fearful reactions and constant distractions, all of our idols must bow. And I think as I wrestle through it, as I have wrestled through it, it's what bothered me was not that it sounds tre- like it would sound trendy to someone who is on the American left and this song would appeal to them. That's not it at all. Because you've heard me say it in, on the show quite a bit. We have an idol of our country, of our flag, of our worldly kingdoms. It's true. I have been there. I've had idols. Now, when I conflate that, like, yes, this, I, I've had an, an idol of my kingdom. But that's not the same as our selfish ambition or power and position. If we, excuse me, for power and position. If you're selfishly ambitious, you are sinful in and of itself. Kingdoms and flags aren't of themselves, for example, patriotism or something, not in and of itself is a sin. Now, the idolatry of them, yeah, that's sinful. Even this concept, the song starts with our rights and our freedoms, all of our items must bow. We have rights that are God-given, not just from, I'm not talking about the Declaration of Independence. Forget about America for a minute. But again, a Mago Day, the image of God on us, and then in the order that God gives us, he has bestowed upon us some rights. And our actual state of nature, especially outside of sin, is freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Now, that's a little bit out of context. There's a con- There's a concept there we can still grab. We are in bondage to sin. That's our true bondage. But our design is freedom. And so to talk about freedom, flag, kingdoms, to talk about weapons and possessions themselves, they're they're idols. Now, granted, I, I read through those and go, but they all can be. Our rights and freedoms and flags and kingdoms and possessions and guns, I say guns, but weapons, they could all be, sure, they could all be idols. And yes, all of them must bow. Jesus is Lord, whatever he wants. You know, it doesn't sound like it, but every time you sing it in church, you sing anything about Jesus being king, Jesus is Lord, it is an, inher- it is an inherently political statement. We are saying, Jesus is Lord, your president's not. Jesus is Lord, Vladimir Putin is not. Neither is Kim Jong-un. The UN is not. Your mayor's not. Your governor's not. They're all under him. Jesus is Lord. And I want to declare that in a church service. I do. I also want to be careful on what we on how on how we categorize what our idols are. And for that matter, like things like in the song, it says fearful reactions and constant distractions. I I don't know if those are idols. I think that's a category problem with sin. By the way, the 
the rest of the, the bridge is, our joy is to walk beside Jesus, our Savior, to love those who hate us. Yes, that's great. Embracing our neighbors, to lay down our lives for the poor and the needy. The cross is our call and our only allegiance. That line, the cross is our call and our only allegiance. You couldn't get a complaint out of me one bit on that. But there's just some imprecision about category error that I don't, I don't think I'd want to sing that song at my church. I, I could be convinced that otherwise, maybe. I could maybe edit some lyrics and do it. But anyway, that's the song. We're going around your church. I am interested in your take because I'm not sure that I'm right. I'm not sure that I'm right, which is, again, very rare for me. Usually when I say things, I'm totally convinced that I'm right. Uh, a lot of you are going, yeah, man, we know. We know that's your, your disposition. So, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, or on any of the social medias, you can find me, Corey Truax. I'd love to know if, if I'm being too picky about that song. All right. Let's stay in the church world. I love data. I love surveys and polls. I don't know why. I always have. And I think I'm trying to gauge people's opinion, and I found a really fun one from, uh, they're called Gray Matter Research. Gray Matter Research. And they have something regular regular I did not know about called the Congregational Scorecard. And they ask a few thousand people questions about their church-going experience. And I want to share with you what they found. And then again, grab any feedback you have about how you might have answered these questions. For example, they ask things like, uh, what would they like to change? If, if you could have more or less of a given thing in your church services when they gather... What would they be? Now, first, I want to acknowledge we, sh- <laughs> we should say first before we ask any of the sheep, uh, ask any of the att- attenders, the members of a church, what would you like more or less of in a service? The first question we ask is, what would the Lord like in the service, right? We call that the regulative principle of worship. We are going through some elder stuff at my church. We're just uh, elder discussions, uh, training, I guess, and stuff like that. And uh, our lead pastor, he, he mentioned leaving that last meeting we did. Let's think about the non-negotiables. What are the non-negotiables for an elder? Like that person, if they don't match us on a non-negotiable, they might still be a Christian. They're a believer. For example, uh, it's a non-negotiable for me that we don't do baby baptism or infant baptism. But that R.C. Sproul and Tim Keller are two of the most formative people I've ever read or listened to. And they're, you know, paedo baptizers. And so for, for Beachwood Church, for our congregation, that would be a, a non-negotiable. One of them for me would be regulative principle worship. That we do church for God. We do church for worship. And so when we find out, how, how, do you want, how do you want to be worshiped? He's actually quite generous to let us know. He was very generous in the Old Testament to say, I want you to worship me through these ceremonies, these sacrifices, do it in a building with these measurements. And then in the, in the New Testament, we get a model. Hey, get together and read the word publicly. Listen to the word preached. Fellowship and have meals with each other. Uh, do the Lord's Supper. Have baptisms. These are things you should do together. And so when a question comes up about whether or not you should do a Christmas play or a, uh, a let's go with dramatic movement or dances or something like that, the question should be, 
the answer should be, well, not in church. There might be some other contexts that in this building, possibly, that those things should take place. But in our, however long church service is for you, ours is about 90 minutes. In our 90 minutes, what should we do here? Right. So um, I want to start there. Of course, the regular principle and how, what we do in church are first, we should first ask, and your church should first ask. I don't mind, I don't mind placing that burden down. I will make that claim. The question should be, what does the Lord want? Not what do the people want? Now, that said, here's some just interesting information. What evangelicals are most likely to wish could be different includes, this, this is crazy to me, how much political involvement and political messaging there is. The number one responding respondents. Now get this. That's 68%. The, the most common answer, 68% of churchgoers said, I wish there was a different amount of political messaging. 11% said more, they wanted more of it, and 22% said they wanted less of it. And the thing is, they're probably in the same church. You should probably stop and just think about that for your church leadership for just a second. They're in a situation where they got 11% of their church members saying, I wish you talked about politics more. And those people are, by the way, to me, those people are crazy. And I w- there's 22% saying, I wish you would talk about politics less. Again, I'd be in that 22% probably if I was just in a regular church, but you you get both of those when you're in leadership. All right, so the number one response for people, what do you wish was different in church, was the level of political content. That should also tell us something about our idols. The people that are showing up to church on Sundays, a majority of them, 68%, have had their week primarily probably being populated in terms of what they consumed with Podcasts, TV shows, websites, not of theological nature, not of spiritual growth nature, but they've allowed voices to speak in them into them about political things as if that's what's going to change the world. So they walk in on Sunday and have a fundamentally different experience from all week long. And instead of letting Sunday change what they do and consume and watch and hear for Monday through Saturday, instead they come into Sunday and say, I wish this was a lot more like my Monday night at 8 o'clock when I sit down and watch my favorite news channel. Yeah, it's not going to be like that. All right, so number one response was uh, amount of political messaging. Number two response, only 66%, it was only 2%, 2% behind. So 66% of people said they would want to change the style of music. 15% said they want new newer songs and more variety of songs. saying they want it to be more traditional. Again, consider, that's probably people in the same church. That I don't doubt that I could do this poll at at Beachwood Church and have 15% of the people saying, you know, we've only really introduced one new song in the last year. I wish we would do more new songs. And that's true for us, by the way. I think we've introduced one, maybe two new songs in the last calendar year. When you roll through a Beachwood Church, you're going to get a lot of old hymns. You're going to get... Uh, really locked in around 40 or so songs that are in rotation, and then we'll add as add others in along the way. And then 18% wanting it a more, tra- more traditional style. Uh, number three response, most common response of what you would want to be changed about your congregation. 65% said the size of the church. So 26% wanted it larger, and 7% wanted it smaller. It's interesting to me. So there are p- people are somewhat, I guess, dissatisfied. They wish their churches were a different size. And 26% of the people 
want it to be larger. I guess I guess it's about right. Never mind. I was surprised by that result for a second, but that makes sense to me. And here is I this is one I really wanted to nail. I really wanted to get in on. The fifth most common answer was the thing they're most dissatisfied by, what they wish was different in their church. Was 60% said outreach to the community. That that's a I don't know, that's lays a burden. Cuz here's what I I feel that. I, I, I think I would say that. If you asked me, what do you wish was different about your church? I wish there was a more direct method of doing things with and for folks who aren't in the church but are in the neighborhoods around us. But if you got everybody in a room and started thinking about ways to do that, it's actually really hard. You can even want to do it and then it not work out for like for example, I've I have some uh, some skills that I could use. I've thought about with young folks and uh, people trying to get their their junk together. Just example, I'm very good job hunter, resume maker, cover letter maker, uh, and coaching on interview skills, inc- improving people's ability to get in front of others and uh, impress in an interview. I would love to offer that for free to groups of people who are trying to up their job game and mentor them that way. We could slap a big sign outside outside of our church just like free career counseling. We wouldn't get a call, not a single one. We could put up a text number or something. We might get a couple of text messages. Like You, you want to do stuff for the community, and I, th- I actually love that this was a top five answer. People want to, but no one knows how anymore. I... I will commend the church around me. I was going to say something a little, uh, let's, let me pull back. I'll just go as, as bland as possible. There's a church close to me that has a food pantry. And every Tuesday, there are dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of cars all lined up. You don't even get out of your car. You just ride in, your tr- pop your trunk, they just put a box of food. If you happen to have babies, uh, there's some diapers in there. I've seen them do it. I think that's awesome. And if you have a church with the size and the volunteers and the ability, cool, let's do that. Let's create those, uh, it, it creates a rhythm where you see the same people every week. You can start asking questions and creating relationships. But that does take a lot of resources and a lot of manpower. I think about, there's, one of the big churches in my my town, the biggest church in my actual city where I live, they offer gigantic infrastructure for sports and activities. It's an, an incredible service they offer to their their neighbors that their kids can come play in very large, well-organized, safe, and well-regulated sports leagues. And it's a way, again, to see the same people over and over again, to start asking questions, getting to know people. And so I, I like this instinct. I love that there's apparently 60% of American churchgoers that say, I wish I had a way in my church to do things in my community. I just know this. A lot of us have been, a lot of us rack our brains over how to do that and have very little idea on how to go about it. I'm just going to read to you. Oh, no, by the way, if, you, if you've seen good ideas for that, I'd love to hear them. Show at gmail.com. Show at gmail.com. I'm going to read to you just the rest of this data, and or at least the interpretation of this data from Gray Matter Research. 
He says, in some cases, when evangelicals wish for change, they're not in agreement about what change should be. The areas in which the largest proportion of evangelicals wish for a change in their church include a 38% who want more outreach to the community, 30% said they wanted more in-depth teaching. I like those people. 27% want to focus more on evangelism. There's several other here that are about all the 20% range. Let me give you one more piece of data they put out. They asked pastors, this is not now churchgoers, they're asking pastors about sermon length. I have a pretty strong opinion on this. I'm a I'm a 40-minute guy. I tend to preach about 40 minutes. My uh, our lead our lead pastor, Mark Dever, um, the guy I'm thinking of is David Platt. They all tend to be closer to an hour. And there's my range between 40 and 60 minutes. I, I prefer a 40-minute. But if you're not going at least 40, I, I'm just saying, I don't know what you did that day. All right, uh, number one thing they found from these pastors. Pastors are, for the most part, changing sermon length over their ministry. So what they found when they asked these pastors is, uh, as they got older, do is your, are your sermons getting shorter or longer? 80% of pastors said yes. As, as the ministry goes on, the length of sermon changes. And for most of them, it goes down. Sermons got shorter as they went along in this survey. The average American sermon in 2021, I cannot believe this. The average American sermon is 27 minutes. In 2019, the last time they did the study, it was 29 minutes. So our sermons are getting shorter. Let me tell you this about the American church. (laughs) If something doesn't need to be getting shorter, it's the sermons. It's the theological training and teaching and formation of the person. We're going to jump out another five minutes of sermon and toss in another Hillsong song. We're going to sing the same line 20 times over. That is not a good trend. Uh, A couple other things they found. uh, Many pastors who... Many pastors who were resistant to shortening the length of their sermons were compelled to do so when they went to multiple surfaces, multiple sites. Okay, that's what they found. Um, for a lot of pastors who went, their sermon length went down from 2019 to 2021, it was because they had to go to multiple services because of COVID. And so you have to be more cognizant of the time. All right, that's all my church data. I got a lot more I want to do when we come back. I'll have to be... Uh, quite judicious with our with our time. You know, I, I know exactly what we'll do when we come back. I have been reading through, uh, I think, one of the most important scholarly works for Christianity, or I shouldn't say that. I've been listening to, on the Apple Books app, this book. I want to tell you about it and one of my takeaways from it when you come back for the rest of the Corey Churak Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Last year, Carl Truman published a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and I couldn't recommend it more highly to you. I'm about two-thirds of the way through. It was recommended to me by several people. It came up recently on a podcast I was listening to, and I figured out I better read this thing. Carl Truman is one of our best Christian scholars in the world of academia, I think he teaches at Grove City College up in Pennsylvania, but he has also done fellowships at Yale, I think one at Princeton. He's well-regarded in the academic world and is a believer, so those things typically don't coincide. Also, he is British, and so when you listen to the book like I am doing, you get to hear a guy with a cool British accent say smart things for 
what's going to end up being like, I think it's like 12 hours of book. It's a lot of book. But he wrote this thing called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And all I want to try to do for a few minutes is tell you what I've learned thus far, because I think it is orienting. We often think about this world that we're in as disorienting. Just in our lifetimes, you could bring somebody not from 1920, you could bring somebody from 1980 into this modern world and say uh, the top two finishers in the women's swim meet in the Ivy League were biological males, but they're women. We call them women now. He have no he would have no uh, category for this reality that we've created. There's a lot of other madnesses, not just the gender madness, that I could give you. But the world changed quickly, not divulged, but uh, dissipated, fell apart into this madness that we're in. And it it happened quick. He has a a book to help explain it. And again, it's orienting. So a lot of what we we experience is disorienting. It is unraveling the reality or at least telling us the reality that we know exists isn't real, so it unravels our our own self-awareness. And this book does a good job of recentering, so you can see what's happening in the world around you. So first, here's the first big takeaway from the book I want to bring you. We, we live in a third-world culture. Not a third-world country, a third-world culture. This is a concept he introduced me to that goes like this. In the first worlds, the idea of morality, what's right and wrong, and what a, society, what a society should do, what a society is there to accomplish, came out of its myths. Often, so we're thinking Greek gods, Roman gods, we're thinking the uh, even, even further back, there's these, these first worlds where we're going to do and behave in these ways because we want the crops to grow, or we want the rain to come, or we want success in this war, and so we're going to do these things. The, the things we're doing are outside of us. We're going to do them for each other in our nation, in our polis, our, our people group, so as to please the objective standard that's out there, the mini-gods, the polygods, and that's what's going to guide and govern our thinking as individual people and how we behave and what our culture does. And that moved into second world cultures, where instead of it being the idea of fate, we're going to let the fates decide, the gods decide, and the gods would would certainly fight it with each other, leading into a monotheism, so Judaism, Christianity, where there is still objective standard for what we should do, what we shouldn't do, why we exist, why all of our different institutions exist, just to give you the examples, why men are men and women are women, why marriage exists, why families exist, fatherhood, motherhood, governments, police systems, legal systems, all of our, all the stuff that we have, uh, entertainments, education, all the different institutions, they have a standard outside of themselves. And in those second cultures, we find them in some kind of uh, religious system, something transcendent. And then in the last 100 years or so, in the Western world, not around the planet, but in the Western world, we moved into a third world culture that said, we don't have standards set up to try to please the various transcendent beings. We aren't going to set up standards to align ourselves with what we believe to be the one God. 
Instead, in the third world, we will all be gods. We will all set up our own standards. It's why his book is called the, the Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self, because the culture, the cultural milieu now is you do you. You decide what's right. You decide who you are. And so when the world becomes that, when the world's purpose, your purpose in life, is to figure out who you are, what you want, how to self-actualize, then you become not a culture made up of objective standards. You don't even become a, a second kind of culture where you try to create a, you, cr- you try to create a culture with others. You become an anti-culture. I love that term. Because if everybody is just trying to figure out themselves with no obligation to the past, no obligation to tradition, no obligation to their fathers, mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, no obligation to your neighbor, your community, your obligation is to you. You don't actually have a culture at all. There's no fabric binding you all together. We are all cities, states, and nations unto ourselves in the culture we have created. And you can see that it's an anti-culture, not a culture, in part because what marks it, in part, is the tearing down of actual cultures. So, if your self-actualization, your happiness, is the king of all things, then you look at the concept of family, and you know you've got to tear it down. Because if I am going to be obligated in any way to my father and my mother, I will tear that structure down because the only obligation I will have is me. If I would have an obligation to my husband or wife and it would not make me happy, I will tear that structure down. Marriage must go. Family must go. We don't have a culture that's just trying to redefine institutions. It's trying to destroy institutions and has done a very good job of it. You look at social norms generally. It's expressing itself differently. It used to express itself primarily as goths, kids that dress outside of the social norm, just to make a point about themselves. That is more becoming more of a, a, a transgender thing or uh, being non-binary, where you express, I am me, and I will break. I don't want, just want to change and redefine. I want to break this culture's idea that there's anything called normal, that there's a normal thing called men and women. There's a normal way to dress. There's a normal way to act around each other, a normal way that you should, uh, you should present yourself. No, not only do I, I don't just want to not be normal. I want to break the culture that says there is such thing as normal. And certainly one of the biggest ones that the book concentrates on is sexuality. That there would be, in the first cultures, the first world cultures, there were sexual standards, and they were still transcendent. something, Something of the gods tells us what we should and shouldn't do with our bodies. And then in the monotheistic religions, the second world cultures, again, transcendent rules. And then our sexuality first transgressed and rebelled against those transcendent rules, but now is not no longer in rebellion. It's in complete destruction. We want to do away with, culturally, that there is such thing as ordered sexual desire, ordered sexual behavior, because here's all that matters. 
for our, for our third world culture. I must be me. And if it requires breaking my family, my, empl- my employment, my own uh, place in society, social norms, governments, if, if me being me breaks anything, so be it, because I must be me. I must be true to myself. I, I struggled. I, I struggle sometimes to come up with the right labels for things. I, I for, uh, for, for one, I love labels. I love that the spirit of the age in any given time gets a name. That we had medievalism or the Dark Ages. That the Dark Ages give give uh, give rise to is that the is that Romanticism that came first? Romanticism uh, that we get the Enlightenment that we have Modernism, postmodernism. I like that we have labels for these things. And I have wondered how to label our time in the West, at least, in the Western world. And I think I've, I think I've come to like this idea of anti-culture. What's the era in which we live? We live in the anti-culture, where the spirit of our age, and I use that word spirit, double entendre. There's a spiritual component to this, that we live in a time of breaking things. Break the norms. Break the systems, break the structures. Because if any system or structure exists, it might restrain me. And anything that would restrain me getting to what I want, that system must be evil. You know, I, I think I said it on the show recently, it's that weird situation where when I was born in the first maybe 10, 15 years of my life, the Christian sexual ethic was thought of as weird. Now it's thought of as wrong. Why? Because the self, the rise of the modern self, this third culture that we're in, that you would restrain me in any way from whatever makes me happy. That makes you the bad guy. I think I'm a... Uh, oh, that's another, another way to say that. We're in the anti-culture, I think, because of this. Cultures, historically, and we can look around the world, Asian, African, all different parts of Europe, Latin America... Cultures are, in part, there to replicate themselves. You want to create more of that culture. I talked about this recently with the fact that we are having fewer kids. An unhealthy place is not having kids. It's not replicating itself. It doesn't look around at its culture, at its customs and traditions and religion and art and governments. It looks around its culture and says, this place doesn't need to be replicated so I'm going to let history terminate on me and get everything I can out of this place because it doesn't need replication anymore. That kind of place is obviously unhealthy. Healthy places look around at their world and think, I want to replicate this. I want it to go for generations and generations, and I want to transmit my values. So we want to either bring people in from around the world or have more kids and transmit to them the values that led us where we are. Because we look around and look, uh, we look around and see, oh, it's good here. Here's the good things that we can see. And let's teach that to our kids. And so you're always trying to build a culture and transmit a culture. The one we're in now is very literally the exact opposite. We don't want to transmit this culture. The values that got us here, whatever got us here, we want them broken. 
break everything. We want to we want to rethink every second of history. Destroy the culture. Don't transmit it. Don't replicate it. Totally destroy the things that ever got us where we've got got us to where we are. I highly recommend the book. The Rise, I think it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I'm going to finish it up. And it's it's one of my it's one of my goals this year. You know, I used to be a, a vociferous reader. It was very normal for me to get through 30 books, 35 books, 40 books in a year. And in the last couple of years, I have replaced reading with podcasting in totality. It still feels like self, uh, let's go with development. Because getting a lot of content that I would have gotten if I would have read books. But there is something about the book. And so that's my first one for this year. I've been reading through or listening to the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by uh, Carl Truman. And uh, when I finish it up, I might end up having some more uh, more thoughts from you there. It occurs to me, it's, it's such a long book, and I'm, I'm like two-thirds of the way through it, and I've basically taken from it just that. This is, this is why I love that, that app I've told you about. I think I let it lapse. There's an app called Blink, Blink something, something Blink. I stopped using it a long time ago where it, it says... If you read a nonfiction book that's, you know, takes ten hours to read, you'll really only remember about fifteen percent of what you read. And I, if this segment has ever been evidence of that, it it's it's there. I mean, that it's a long, long book and lots of like he does a good job of building building the case and then using modern day scenario situations to illustrate that the concepts are true. So anyway, it's out there, it's cheap, and I highly recommend it. One other quick note. This coming Sunday, I will be preaching at Beachwood Church from the Gospel of Mark, continuing that series. There is, there's a portion at the at the end of the uh, that I want you to have. I'll put the sermon up on um, on the on the podcast feed. At the end of a discussion with the Sadducees, there is a uh, a statement from Jesus where he says to them, "Aren't you quite wrong? You're wrong about a given thing about resurrection." And you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. I both want you to have that payoff here as we finish the show. Because this, all of these challenges that we have talked about today, we started Sanctity of Life Sunday, talking about a culture that's following falling apart. Those are the things that we're going to need. So dedicating ourselves this year to prayer, to reading the word, the power of God is where I would put prayer in that category. Uh, So let us be people doing that all year long. I'll be back with another new edition of The Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.